Yeah, there we go. Yay! That's the recording. It's making files out of data bits of my voice. It's very the future. Ready? Yeah. Hi, this is Cody Dagalorian. This is Neil Dagalorian. And this is a new episode of Bearded Fruit. Yay! Happy um, Valentine's Day. It's Valentine's. It's time for you to Valen. <laughs> we are recording this episode on Valentine's Day, so this is our the way that we are celebrating uh, another year of us uh, still liking each other. Yeah, in scenic northern New Jersey. In scenic northern New Jersey, yes. So we're going to talk about queer things. Queer smorgasbord. This week we're going to chat about some things that are happening in pop culture and in the news. Talk about how they're queer. Yay! Everything is queer. Sorry, Mom. So first, let's uh, start with... What? Can we make that into a t-shirt? Can we have a bearded fruit t-shirt that says everything is queer on the top and then sorry, Mom, on the bottom? Yeah. Sure. Sorry. (laughs) So first, the founders of Scruff uh, gave an interview with BuzzFeed uh, where they talked about uh, sort of a rather controversial part of their app, um, the race filter on their app. If you are not a Scruff user, if you're a premium member of Scruff, you can um, filter out anyone of a particular race so that you only see white people or only see black people or only see Asian people on your um scruff grid and it's uh, been a rather controversial option on the scruff app basically you're paying to practice your racism that is the criticism that people have made about this filter on the app see so when you first introduced this story to me i didn't realize it was a paid thing i thought it was just a a thing i thought it was just a filter no you have to now that i now that i recognize that it's paid it actually kind of makes me feel better because it's like (laughs) If you have those kinds of prejudices, if you have those kinds of biases, like, yeah, you should pay for those. <laughs> it, it feels a little gross and a little weird to, like, completely single out an entire race because that's what, quote-unquote, gets you off. But if they're paying for it, then... Uh. Well, here's what they had to say about the uh, app. Eric Silverberg, who's one of the founders of Scruff, uh, he said, Those are legitimate critiques. Ultimately, we wanted to build an app and a service that enables guys to find the kind of guys they're into, and for some people that includes, in the interview he stopped himself here and continues, that can mean many things for different people. Sometimes they have ethnic preferences, sometimes they have height-weight preferences, sometimes people have body hair preferences. Mm. So, I guess the question then is, is, is that legitimate? Is can race just be a preference in the same way that some people prefer heavier guys or prefer muscly guys or prefer guys with beards or guys with body hair or nobody? Mm-hmm. How does race fit into that? I feel like that is super tricky because, like, on one hand, you totally have people where it's like, well, it's the same thing as basing your preferences off of appearance. But then on the other hand, you have the entire systematic conglomerate that is racism. So it's it's not simply saying, oh, well, it's the same as I only like guys with beards. It's it's not. It simply isn't. Especially since, like, we are socialized to privilege Eurocentric values of beauty um, over other values of beauty. We are, as a society, we we privilege, like, small noses, and we, and we privilege fair skin, and we privilege all these um, 
all these concepts of beauty because of what we are socialized to believe in. So, like, to simply say that race is along the same lines as saying that you only like bigger guys. Well, I think it's interesting just in terms of the, the notion of preference, period. This idea that our preferences are somehow uh, untouchable by outside means. Like, our preferences just spring forth from us like some magical, mm -hmm. like the sword from the lake. Our preferences, no matter what they are, are shaped by external forces in a lot of ways. Sword from the lake? Yeah, it was Excalibur reference. I thought that was a stone. No, Excalibur came out of the the lake, and then he pulled it out of a... Or, was it in a stone out of the lake? Like, was No, this... there's a lady of a lake, and there was a sword from the lake. that Somebody got a sword from the lake. Are you thinking Zelda? I think you're thinking Zelda. There was a sword from the lake. Okay, because that happens in Zelda, too. We're going to figure this out, and then I will post the Next link time that, on Bearded Fruit. The link that will... proves I'm right will be on the website. Oh, wow. Um, That's, uh... But back to what I was saying. The... This notion that preference comes out of us that is just sort of this thing that's, that's born from us that isn't influenced by outside forces is, is kind of a faulty idea. Mo our preferences for things are always shaped by what's going on outside. And I think there's something valid to, to having a conversation about whether or not the outside forces that are shaping those preferences that you like only – you only want to date white guys or you only want to date black guys or you only want to date fat guys – whether or not the things that are shaping those preferences are positive forces. You know, it, it's entirely possible that your preferences are being shaped by really negative things, and you could take a moment of self-reflection to figure that out. But, I mean, dudes who use scruff aren't going to do that. They just want to get off. Well, yeah, well, <laughs> fair. And that's enough. So the other founder of, of scruff, uh, the Johnny Scruff, I'm Johnny sure that's Scandros. his legal name. Um, he's, he's quoted in the interview as saying, Outside of your sexual partner, boyfriend, or husband, yes, I think it's good and right to see our assumptions challenged, our biases challenged, and certainly in the public sphere in the workplace. But when it comes to the very personal choice of who you're partnered with, it's something we leave to our members. And it makes a certainly interesting choice. I mean, the, the question of, of, of racism in our country is a very serious one. But is it necessary for us to have it? On scruff. You're, you're not about to drop some bell hooks knowledge while on scruff. Like, hey, you're 30 feet away from me. Have you read Gender Trouble by Judith Butler? Because um, your profile is very problematic. You really should look into that. Also, woof. I mean, I, appre I appreciate that people are making... Pers I mean, I'm, I certainly am not going to have too much time on scruff for somebody who says no fats, no femmes, no black guys, no Asians, because... Oh. Clearly, that person and I are not going to have terribly much to talk about because our worldviews are very different. But I don't know, you know, I don't know if necessarily Scruff is the best place for us to be having a grand discourse. Right, this grand, like, that, that, the, that the race filter on Scruff is the most problematic thing. Although I do, I mean, I think, I think it's problematic. I don't mm -hmm. think you should be able to do it. And... Well, like I said, like, that's a thing that people do regardless. Like, people mm -hmm. are going to filter whether or not they check a box. Um, and that's the problem. The problem isn't necessarily whether or not this filter exists. The problem is people wanting to use the filter. When there was a, an Australian study that was published not long ago in the Archives of Sexual Behavior um, that was entitled, Is Sexual Racism Really Racism? And it uh, that was the focus of the study, whether or not having um, ethnic preferences, quote-unquote, uh, in racism, and dating is connected to racism at all, and what they found was that sexual racism was closely associated to generic racist attitudes, 
uh, which challenge so that challenged the idea that racial attraction is solely a matter of personal preference. It found that guys who were only interested in dating a certain ethnic group or or excluding ethnic groups in their dating pool also were guilty of racial bias in other places uh, and i that's not terribly surprising because i think particularly for for white people we don't really recognize our racism terribly much when we're being racist or we don't we don't recognize that some very subtle things are also racist as well it's not just wanting to you know to hang black people from trees or or or, or calling them the n-word or or using other derogatory slurs for other races that that racism is a lot more complicated than that so that if we don't see it in the regular world we certainly wouldn't see it in just our preference for dating white guys if that was the case well yeah it exists in like subtle things like you said such as like thinking someone is beautiful for a latino person or thinking God, I wish I could source it, but there's this great video I saw of a guy, of two guys who, like, met at, like, a pride parade or something ridiculous. It was stupid. But, like, they start making out, they get back to their house, and the dude takes off his sunglasses and reveals he's Asian um, because he was wearing sunglasses. And then the white guy's like, whoa, I, I didn't realize you are Asian. Sorry, I'm not into you. Even though they just spent, like, 30 minutes voraciously making out. He's like, I thought you were, like, some kind of, like, Latino or something. I guess the, the the point is that like there was there's clearly like attraction there's clearly something and then immediately I'm dropping a hat the guys like oh I'm not attracted to you um, and it's like okay there's clearly something more problematic than just on. preference yeah well I I think it's in in one way it, it I'm glad that this conversation is happening it's happening in other ways too but I think the question of racism in the queer community as a whole is an important one for us to be having um, mm-hmm. because. We certainly have seen that the the LGBT narrative has been predominantly white and predominantly male, and the, the popular narrative. The, the popular sure. narrative has definitely absolutely been predominantly white and predominantly male. And to I think now that we've gotten to this point where the folks who have led that narrative, the predominantly white, predominantly male, uh, gay members of the LGBT community, have achieved a certain amount of mainstream acceptance and almost really kind of admittance into the power structure, I think it's fair Mm -hmm. to say, that we examine how those other intersectional issues play out in our community and that we can be guilty of other biases. I bet the the people who use this filter on these apps are the same people who went to that Stonewall movie and teared up thinking about how authentic of a story it was. But also to be fair... I mean, are, 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 do we also have a problem with white guys using it to only find black guys? Well, I mean, if it breaks into tokenism, yeah. But, I mean, that's also, like, more discourse that it's like, is it even worth having on Scruff? Like, um, hi, I'm attracted to you. It's not just because you're black, but also I think black is beautiful. But, I mean, <laughs> I would love to know how you go, on Scruff. Was that an emoji? Um, yeah, no, it's it's the grimace emoji, it's the sad face emoji, it's um, open mouth crying emoji, and then poop emoji. What about lady red, red lady dancing? Red lady dancing, that's definitely not, that's more. Gotcha, gotcha. So, Billy Eichner, who is a comedian, he was also on Parks and Rec, and he is now in the Hulu series Difficult People. Um, incredibly funny. He's, he's also the host of Billy on the Street, uh, that absolutely hilarious game show where he runs around New York uh, with celebrities and yells at them and is insanely 
funny. He was recently featured on PBS NewsHour uh, in their brief but spectacular series. It's short video interviews with celebrities, and they're mostly talking about themselves and their careers. And uh, there's an interesting quote that we both connected to. I'm gay, and I'm in comedy. When everyone asks me if it was a conscious choice to be out of the closet as a comedian, I don't know. Was it a conscious choice to be white? I don't know. This is just like what I bring to the table. I think we both responded to that because it's an interesting question about how your queerness impacts your creative life. I just thought it was um, kind of refreshing that he brought up his whiteness as a race and that it's something that he brings to the table. We're so often like the narrative is that white is normalized, that like it's not even a race. Um, so that's what struck out to me, but also just like in thinking about my own work, I can't talk about my work without outing myself. My work doesn't matter or mean anything unless it's understood where it's coming from. And that's something that I realized a couple months ago. There's just no possible way for me to talk about my work without outing myself and like outing my politics because I feel like my work is becoming super political because it's becoming personal. It, I, I, it resonates with me, the notion that it's just something that I bring to the table. It's just something that's with me and I have to do something about it because it's who I am. It's so core to my being. I guess what is intriguing to me about it is the question of the the centrality of your queerness to the work that you do. You know, it has, as he, he says, it's just something I bring to the table. For a long time, I felt that way as a writer, that, that be, I wasn't necessarily a quote-unquote gay playwright, but I was a playwright who was gay, and sometimes that informed the work I did, and most of the times it didn't. Um, but I think as I've gotten older, I've started to realize that my experience of queerness has colored every bit of the things that I've done and are, and are reflective in all of the pieces that I write, even if I'm not specifically writing about gay things. So that kind of question of whether or not you're a... Are you a gay artist? Do you consider yourself a gay artist? I used to, I used to say, no, I would never consider myself... Well, I would more appropriately say queer now, that I... Would not have called myself a queer artist before, but I would call myself one now. Because I feel like even if I'm not writing about queer things, I'm certainly writing from a queer perspective and writing in a queer way. You've, you've appropriate, not appropriate, you've um, embraced a queer aesthetic. Yeah, that my work, that the, the thing I bring to the table still absolutely informs everything that I do. And, um, you know, this this weekend we are, we are in scenic... Northern, Northern New, New, Jersey. New Jersey because uh, of a children's play of mine that's opened. And, and after the opening, one of the first things that Neil said about the play was, did you realize you wrote a queer children's play? Uh, and actually, I mean, I really hadn't, but in, in discussing it with him, I, I recognize that that's absolutely true. Do you think artists have artists who are queer, artists who um, identify as queer or who have the queer experience, do you think they are responsible to make that a part of their work or to acknowledge that it's a part of their work? Absolutely not. Artists who are queer can simply just be artists who are queer and not have their work be about anything that's remotely queer. I find myself less attracted to that kind of work, personally, but just knowing my own personal aesthetics, I am attracted to personal narratives. I'm attracted to work that is so specific that it becomes universal. Writing about my work and my influences like Marjane Satrapi, 
Laura Jane Grace, Felix Gonzalez Torres, artists who like work in very, very different mediums, but they're taking like their personal narrative, their personal experience and making work for it. And suddenly it becomes universal and suddenly I can relate to it, even though I'm not a transgender punk rocker or I'm not a, an Iranian refugee, I can still relate so much to their stories. I think there's a, a difference between the relationship between the artist and the work and the, the experience that that entails and the experience the artist has in making it and the mm -hmm. things that generate it and then the relationship between that piece of art and the world that it has to enter into and mm -hmm. as the artist you can you can be very specific about what you want when you're making it but what happens to it when it goes out into the world what people take it and do with it mm -hmm. is something that's sort of out of your control. There was a conversation that I had with a, a friend about a Latino filmmaker who was uh, being, I think it was the New York, New York Times article, and she was being profiled for a web series she, that she was creating. And it was this, this is going to be this web series that was entirely staffed by Latino filmmakers, uh, led by a woman, a female Latino filmmaker. And um, the, the web series was really just going to be about people living their lives, but it would be populated by Latino artists. And the, the author of the profile sort of mentioned it as a kind of activism, uh, even though it, the, the piece itself was not espousing any activist ideas, but just calling this piece of work an activist piece of work. And the discussion is, is that a tag that we should put on artists uh, who are just simply expressing their own experience? Is it a tag that we put on things, even if that's not the intent of the work? Uh, and I just feel like that's, it is an activist piece of work because it goes out into the world and fulfills that that job for people who are consuming it. It's playing a political role in the world, even if there wasn't a political idea at the heart of making it. Well, that plays into the um, that plays into the notion of the personal is political. A paper by uh, Carol Hanish in the '60s. In that paper, she's specifically talking about this like support group she's going to, and how these women are coming with their problems that are very personal problems, such as like not having enough time for childcare, not having enough time to do things, not having the resources. Um, that their husbands do, things like that. And she argues that these personal problems are political problems because of the state of women and because of what women are relegated to do in the home specifically, but also just in the workplace, what women are expected to do and what women can do in this contemporary moment where she's writing it. But that speaks volumes. And if anything, it's, if anything, it's a little sad that that becomes activist because it shouldn't be like like the, the whole point is that it shouldn't be activist to, and it shouldn't be radical to see diverse colors um diverse faces like making things and putting themselves out there and putting their stories out there like that shouldn't be activist but it and, is yeah and it shouldn't be activist for it to just to be a queer person in an art mm -hmm. form mm -hmm. like going back to to what the way billy eichner sort of frames his his gayness in terms of his comedy career I totally respect that as an artist, you can see your queerness as an inconsequential part of what you do. Um, but in the in the world, when your work is actually out there doing things, I think until we reach a place where it's not so radical just to be a queer person, mm -hmm. um, queer people making things and the work that they make will always sort of be seen through that lens of through the lens of queerness. It won't just like stand on its own. Until, as a larger culture, we we sort of eliminate this kind of radicalness of being queer anyway. Yeah, and he, he kind of mentions that in, in the quote, but even more specifically in the interview itself. He, he talks about just being blind to it. Like, it's hard for him to grasp the notion that, like, what he does is queer or what he does is radical or what have you. 
based on his background and based on his experiences he didn't he just simply didn't realize that being himself was radical which like is a very privileged place to be in (laughs) so good for you two for you billy eichner red coco (laughs) so uh, it's black history month and uh we we wanted to again as we did last week while we're still in the in black history month to share some queer artists worth knowing the black queer artist that I'm into right now, uh, Big Frida. Uh, big surprise. Big, <laughs> big Frida. Uh, if you don't know Big Frida, she uh, is incredibly a fabulous bounce artist from New Orleans. Maybe like the most important bounce artist. Uh, you may have heard her work on RuPaul's Born Naked album. She's featured on a couple songs in there. And also uh, is heard on Beyonce's Formation, which literally everyone has talked about or had something to say about in the last couple of weeks. Uh, but Big Frida has an album from 2014 called Just Be Free that uh, is an absolutely splendid album. And if you really want to get a picture of what uh, New Orleans Bounds music is like, checking out that album is really incredible. Uh, there's also some wonderful uh, video pieces, which we'll link to on the site, that gives you a, a glimpse into Big Frida's um, life and her work but if you're looking for a new queer artist to jam to on your spotify during your work day uh make it big frida because she's a the most influential bounce artist from new orleans the queen diva absolutely the queen diva the the queer artist that i want to talk about is micheline thomas she is i guess you would call her a painter she also does photo work she also does some sculptural work what she's best known for are these big, beautiful, fabulous, like sequined painting portraits of powerful black women. Sometimes it's her mother. Most of the times it's her lovers or herself or her space that she um, exists in. Gorgeous work. She has this like really beautiful, sweet documentary about her mother and about working, collaborating with her mother in creating these portraits of her. And sometimes it gets a little weird because she's posing her mom in the same poses that she poses her lovers. So it's kind of like, um, but like, there's this weird empowerment about it. Um, not weird empowerment. There's this empowerment about the poses that she puts her mother in that acknowledges the fact that A, children are a product of sexual behavior, but B, women are worth empowering and worth seeing that way and are allowed to be empowered by their bodies and that includes mothers because mothers are women too which is something that i think we forget as a society that moms are women and that moms are included in that body positive dialogue and and sex positive dialogue so yeah micheline thomas she's great well we'll be back next week with a yeah next week with a new episode of bearded fruit we're gonna talk about happy things like rainbows and sunshines knowing the state of queerness in the world today i don't think it'll be all rainbows and sunshine but we'll do our best Thank you for listening to the Bearded Fruit Podcast. To find out more about Bearded Fruit, find us on Facebook at Bearded Fruit or visit us on the web at www.beardedfruit.com.